And for me, what is important in this group is two, two things, actually. One is that there's a certain power simply in coming together and sitting to remind ourselves, especially at times when it's difficult or when our lives get very busy or when we sit and it doesn't feel so good and so we stop for a while. You know those cycles, do you? The ones where you stop. It's a, it's a kind of a infusion of energy and a reminder through the Sangha, through coming together as a group of people um, whose collective energy makes a, makes a kind of common purpose. Um, I wish there was something for you to sit on. You're welcome to come up here, too, if you can find a cushion. There's one. Send it back. So the first thing is, is a kind of joining together for, for that common energy. Um, and that's connected a lot with what I spoke on last week, which was the foundation of practice of right understanding. The importance of a spiritual life, that actually it's something really a treasure for us to undertake. And that genuine spiritual life, the second point, involves all of what we do, our eating, our driving, our relations to our family, and our sitting meditation. And that it doesn't happen by accident. This is a review from last week, but in case you missed it. But actually, there is a capacity which we have to train our hearts and our minds and our bodies in new ways of being, in opening, in equanimity, in a greater degree of loving-kindness, in a clarity or wisdom. So tonight, what I'd like to talk about is the second step of the Eightfold Path. The first was last week was the fundamental understanding in starting practice. The second step is called right attitude or right thought. And for these talks, for a few weeks anyway, I'm going to give some regular talks and then maybe we'll have some more interactive discussions. There'll be question discussion time tonight too, but just as a way of establishing a certain framework for practice. So one's decided that spiritual practice is worthwhile for some reason or whatever, and that um, understand that it's not doesn't mean we have to go off in the monastery, but that our our household life, our driving, our interpersonal relations, they are our practice, and that it requires some working with. So then the next level or the next step in this is right attitude or right right thought, it's called. One sees the value in inner life and sees that, frankly, our happiness is based on our heart considerably more than it is external circumstances. And there can be difficulties around, and if the heart is open or clear or understanding, we can be happy. There can be, we can be in the midst of beautiful circumstances and be miserable, be lonely or depressed or whatever. And that our happiness, which we seek, is really a function of our heart. So interior life. There's a letter which I've read at retreat sometimes. I'll reread part of it from George Wald, the Nobel Prize winning biologist at Harvard. He was replying to this issue about whether there should be a sperm bank for Nobel laureates uh, so they could make more of themselves or something. <laughs> Some irate feminist wrote into the newspaper and said, sperm bank, there should be an egg bank. 
what is this? And he, he responded to her. He said, as a biologist, you're absolutely right, Pauline. It takes an egg as well as a sperm to start a Nobel laureate. And say all you want of fathers, their contribution to conception is really rather small. But I hope you're not seriously proposing that, he said. By now, scientifically, and Nobel laureates aside, there isn't much in the way of starting an egg bank. There are some technical problems, but nothing like as hard as involved in the other kinds of breeder reactors. But think of a man so vain as to insist on getting a superior egg from an egg bank. Then he has to fertilize it. And when it's fertilized, where does he go with it? To his wife? Here, dear, you can hear him saying, I just got this superior egg from an egg bank and just fertilized it myself. Will you take care of it? I've got eggs of my own to worry about, she says. You know what you can do with your superior egg. Go rent a womb. And while you're at it, you better rent a room, too. You see, he says, it just won't work. The truth is that what one really needs is not Nobel laureates, but love. How do you think one gets to be a Nobel laureate? Wanting love, that's how. Wanting it so bad, one works all the time and ends up a Nobel laureate. It's a consolation prize. What matters is love. Forget sperm banks and egg banks. Banks and love are incompatible. If you don't know that, you don't know bankers. So just practice loving. Love a Russian. You'd be surprised how easy it is and how it will brighten your morning. Love whales. Love Iranians, Vietnamese, everywhere. And then when you're really good at it, try loving something difficult like the politicians in our capital. I hope I didn't read that last week, but <laughs> it's a favorite. So that, that speaks to that initial impulse to begin our, our spiritual life, that what matters is not Nobel laureates, really, but love. And when we die, as I said last week, one of the questions we ask, maybe the most important one about our life is, did I love well? Maybe nothing else counts but that. So right attitude. What's the approach, right thought, to, to begin or to can continue our practice? Mind is the forerunner of all things, it says, the first phrase in the Dhammapada, the sayings of the Buddha. If you act based on kindness and wisdom in the mind, Happiness will follow you like the wheel of a chariot follows the oxen which draws it. And if you act based on unkindness, or you act out of, uh, in, from an unwise state of mind, unwisely, then unhappiness follows just as the wheel of the cart follows the, follows the oxen which draws it. Three aspects to right attitude. The first is openness or receptivity. In undertaking our practice, not to try and make it a certain way. I want it to be always peaceful. I want it to be calm. I want not to be angry. Or I want my body not to hurt, or my knees. Or I don't want to be restless. Or I don't want to be afraid. Or I want to come to a lot of light or joy. Good luck. You get that sometimes. But if you look just for that, what will happen in your daily practice? A really simple thing happens if you're really looking for that. 
what happens? You're disappointed, and then what do you do? You stop sitting. Because you hold in mind a model of how your personality should be, or how your body should behave, or how your mind should be. Does it listen to you very much? Tell the truth. You sit here and you say, thoughts don't come. Does it help much? A little bit with some training maybe, but just a little. It's like the radio. The advertisements come and you can't say, I want radio without advertisements. It doesn't work. The thoughts keep coming. Or your personality. You know, you might have begun some investigation or awareness of what your personality is like. And as most people, when they start to look at their personality, after a little while, they go, yuck. Because personalities, almost by nature, have that kind of quality to it. And you say, God, well, maybe if I practice hard, my thoughts will quiet down and I can kind of change my personality. I have news for you. Your personality is kind of like your body. You come in and you get issued one for this ride. And you can get wiser or kinder, but you kind of have it. And you'll be a wise character of the same personality that you are an unwise one. But you'll be pretty much the same. Or you'll be a loving whatever you are now, however you define yourself. So openness means not getting caught on, I want it to be quiet or peaceful of the body, to be this way or the mind but more a quality of discovery, of experimenting, of seeing what I am. I'm going to sit and listen to my heart and see what I really care about or where I'm afraid or what I hold back on. I'm going to look at my mind and see what the patterns are and what the desires are and see what makes me happy and what makes unhappiness and how that works in the world around. There's enormously rich and deep things to discover in our practice. It requires this attitude of, I'm going to look and learn, rather than I'm going to make it a certain way. And we actually have to do it. There's a beautiful poem I'll read from from Rilke, the German poet. He says, sometimes a man stands up during supper and walks outdoors and keeps on walking because of a church that stands somewhere in the east. And his children say blessings on him as if he were dead. And another man who remains inside his own house stays there inside the dishes and in the glasses so that his children have to go far out into the world toward that same church which he forgot. Such a wonderful poem that if that there's something in us, in our nature, which which compels us to discover. And I remember a very powerful moment with the, with the old guru in Bombay who I studied with, Nisargadatta Maharaj, um, who taught the way of Nisarga Yoga. N- Nisarga means natural. His, the basic translation of his name was Mr. Natural. It was this 80-year-old cigarette-smoking... Um, he sold little, so he had a little cigarette stand on the streets. He just happened to be a fully enlightened cigarette salesman. But anyway, one day we were in the room about this big, and his disciples, and people coming and asking questions. He was kind of like a combination of Krishnamurti and Fritz Perls. He would put you on the hot seat when you came in and ask you about your spiritual life. Somebody came in and asked a question and was a little dissatisfied and left. Another person raised their hand and they said, Maharaj, 
What will happen to that person, to that man or that woman, who came and asked this question and left? Is it all over for them in this life? I mean, they didn't stay here. You are a great guru. They, they, they weren't interested. They went home. And he twinkled at that moment. He really lit up. And he said, it's too late. He said, even the fact that they put their foot in this room, even if they hadn't asked a question, means that somewhere in there, there's a seed of really knowing who we are and what this life is about. Not what you were taught in elementary school or what's on TV or the newspapers, but a deep seed of knowing our true nature that wants to discover, that wants, it's like coming home. And the fact that he just walked in the room means that that seed has started to sprout. And no matter if he tries to forget it and goes back and gets lost, sooner or later that will manifest in awakening. We can't not do it. Once we start, um, Trumpa Rinpoche, in speaking with his students, he said, he said, frankly, I recommend that you don't start the spiritual path because it's painful and it's difficult, it's really hard. So my recommendation to all of you, this big public talk one night, is not to do it. You can leave now. <laughs> and then he said, but I have a second recommendation, that is, if you start, you better finish. If you begin it, then really do it. And it's, it's something in us. I think it's the, the part that, that, that loves truth. Or maybe it's the part that loves connection with another being. Even if we're terrified of intimacy. Some of you may know that one. Or we're terrified of, of getting close and then losing things. Or we're, we're afraid of, of dying. Or it's hard to look at parts of ourselves or whatever. There's something in our heart that really wants union. It wants to connect with people, with life, with the world around us in a deep way. And openness then, this first part of right attitude, is this process of discovery, of seeing what's here and opening to it. Not trying to change it, but seeing clearly with mindfulness, without judging fear, loneliness, aggression, joy, happiness, love, sorrow, our body, how we use it, how we exercise with it, what we eat, when we're full, when we overeat. The beginning is just this quality of discovery because it's fantastic then. That makes spiritual practice alive. It's not some rote imitation. Then we can begin to learn. And we learn about the forces of desire, of fear, of wanting, of love that make the whole world go round and really run our lives whether we're conscious or when we're on automatic pilot. They still operate. We start to discover who we are and how it works. And this leads to the second part of right attitude. The first is a, is a quality of exploration or openness, not trying to make it, but really looking at it. And the second is that of renunciation. The saying in India is that when a pickpocket meets a saint, he sees only the saint's pockets. That what we want determines what we see. If you walk down the street and you're hungry, what do you see? Restaurants. Oh, there's a Greek restaurant. I could have feta cheese and a nice salad. Oh, there's a nice natural food restaurant. Now, I think I'll have a burger. There's a, uh, there's a good place for burgers. Or there's an Italian restaurant. You don't see shoe stores. Or if you come to the sitting and you look around, you know, there's break time, it's time for tea. What you're interested in 
you, you like to talk to women, you'll see the women. You're interested in sex, you see people who are attractive to you or your competition for those people. You're interested in astrology and you kind of check out and see who else is or whether there are lots of water signs who come sit or fire signs or something. You're interested in young people or old people, that's what you scope out. If you're a barber, you come in here and you see who needs a haircut. What your interest is determines, it limits what you see. And what renunciation means is putting what we want aside for a little bit. At Ajahn Chah's, where I studied in the forest monastery for a while, we did a lot of work with a practice of the monks' rules as discipline, and there were hundreds of them. And at first they seemed like a real pain in the ass. As I learned to work with them, and work with the discipline of not eating after 12 noon, or sitting in a certain kind of posture when you were with senior monks, or there was a whole lot of ritual around it, it required a lot of surrender. And as I did it, I saw, I don't want to do it. I want to do it my way. And why? This is 2,000 years old, and it's dumb, and it's modern times. And all the kinds of resistances came up. And of course, I didn't have much choice, because I was a monk. I was supposed to do it, and whatever. I, I mean, if, I, if I'd have stopped, I suppose I could have left or something. But, all right, I'll do this trip. But all the resistance and all the things of not wanting to follow rules or not wanting to go against my habit, we're spoiled in this country. You can drink whatever kind of beer you want and eat whatever kind of food and travel where you like and we have a capacity to, to change our lives in ways that most people in the world don't come close to. So here it was, renunciation. Don't do that completely, but stop. And what came from it was a discovery that there's a strength of heart that comes when we don't just follow our habit that it's a strengthening of heart. And it brings a kind of sense of well-being or purity or something. Because we begin to train ourselves that we don't have to follow all our habits and all our desires. And Ajahn Chah was great because he would psych you out when you came, came to there to begin practice. And if you were someone who, who loved to meditate and loved it peaceful and quiet, he would assign you to the monastery in the middle of Bangkok in the traffic. And if you loved to socialize and talk and be with people, he would send you off to one where everyone was in separate caves and you had to deal with your loneliness or your aloneness. And the style of practice, which really is relevant to our lives, was to look into that which we're afraid of, which we run away from, or which keeps us moving all the time, where we're afraid to stop. It requires a little fire. Practice has some fire. If it doesn't have fire, it's not interesting. Yeah, you sit and you hold hands at dinner, you get a little om, and it's kind of peaceful, and you eat. It's not very interesting. There's a fire. It transforms your body. It transforms your heart. It makes you feel your loneliness and your desire. And you look at the places that you hold tension in your body and what it means to be unhappy or to be happy, to look at your suffering to look at your expectations. That's juicy. That's interesting. And that's where liberation comes. So this second step is renunciation. It means beginning to work with areas of our life where we've been unconscious and which we know. I mean, I could go around the room and just ask you, and you could all name off the things that, that could use a little work. Not because it's bad or anything, but because you can empower yourself through it. 
Let's take a moment now and think of an area to work on for this next month. You know? Maybe a very small one. It might be as simple a thing as biting your nails or whatever it is. Think of one thing for yourself that you really want to look at and discover more about, that you're caught in. It's a habit, it's a uh, compulsion or a fear or whatever. Do you have one? I'm sure you must be able to think of one. Okay, fine. Now here I want to give an assignment, which you're welcome to do. If you're the kind that resists assignments, fine. Don't do it. Don't, please don't do it. All right. The assignment, working with openness, is for one week, just look at it. Make the, make the resolve in your mind that this thing, whether it's nail-biting or being afraid of this or compulsive of that or, or whatever it happens to be that you chose, for one week you're going to be a botanist and you're going to study when it comes out. Is it a night creature or a day creature? You know, and what its mating habits are and what it eats and how long it's there. So you're really going to study it. First, you'll see the superficial nature of how often it comes. Count it for a day, whatever it is. It might be a mental state or an activity, and see how often it comes. Then start to look deeper. See what's there when it comes. Does this, the, when you bite your nails, if you pay attention to your heart and your mind and say, oh, I start biting them when I'm afraid. All right, now what happens? I'm afraid, what's there with the fear? Oh, I get lonely. Maybe that's what it is. So you see, oh, it's loneliness and then fear and then chomping away or whatever the thing is you're examining. So let yourself take a week and go from the activity itself, really seeing how often it comes and what it's like, and also look at the heart and the mind under it and see if you can discover the mental states that come and see how they come and go. Let it be a practice of of a deeper insight than that even. You see the content, you see the sources of it in your feelings, and then also you see how the action and the mind states and all of them come like clouds for a little bit and they pass away. So that's your assignment for one week, is to study it. Then the second week's assignment, which I'll give you tonight in case you don't come next week. (laughs) The second week is to stop it for just one week, whatever that particular thing is, either the outer activity or the inner one, if it's, well, I'm always afraid of this. All right, try to stop it and watch what happens when you stop it. Not because it's bad or you're going to get rid of it completely, but then make your observation and your experiment to see what mental states and what experiences come when you don't do that. Does this give you some sense of what I mean by fire or being willing to work with yourself? It's discovery. It's not that that's bad. You may do it for the rest of your life. But you can begin to sense this capacity of inner strength, of, of directing our attention and concentrating the mind and seeing with more clarity. And we start with little things and we see how we're bound. It's really the question of bondage and liberation from biting your nails to the deepest inner things. You start to see what it is that creates bondage and how we can discover this resource we have to be freer inside. We become, as Ramdas put it, connoisseurs of our neurosis. It's like, it's not that the neurosis goes away necessarily, but you have, oh wow, that's, look at that example, isn't that fantastic? I really did it that time. 
And you get, there's a sense of humor that you can bring to it. Wow. When you observe after a while, either there comes despair or humor, depending which you want to pick. <laughs> after a while, you get tired of despair, and you see, my God, there it goes again. And you sort of... All right. So the first thing was a right attitude was openness. That it's not a thing of, I'm going to perfect myself and make the perfect personality and the perfect body and the perfect mind. I don't know anybody like that. But it's a quality of really discovery and openness. And then the second is a willingness to work, not just to follow our habits, but to put ourselves into it a little bit. To, to put some effort out. Renunciation. And then the third is the quality of non-harming, it's called. Thoughts of non-harming or loving thoughts. And how to evoke that? How can we bring this quality of loving? Love, I, I get tired of using it in some ways in talks because it's such an overused word in some way. But how can we evoke that quality in our spiritual life, which means in what we do, becoming more conscious? One way is to see the events that come to us, especially the difficult ones, as gifts. Not necessarily as good gifts, but his gifts, or Don Juan calls them challenges. He says, only as a spiritual warrior can one withstand the path of knowledge. A warrior cannot complain or regret anything. Their life is an endless challenge, and challenges cannot possibly be good or bad. Challenges are simply challenges. The basic difference between an ordinary person and a warrior is that a warrior takes everything as a challenge, while an ordinary person takes everything either as a blessing or a curse. So one way to discover this quality of, of love really is to see, we got a big playpen. I'm getting into baby metaphors these days. You have to understand it's my new conditioning. We, we have a big playpen and a lot of toys, some of which are hot and they burn, and some of which are cold, and some are pleasant, some aren't. But to see that which... Our life is limited. We're born, we're going to die. Nothing will stop that. No matter how fast you run or how much you jog or what you do, you're going to die anyway. And so because it's limited, it makes it interesting to experiment with. All right, let's learn in this time we're here. Let's really look at it. It's hard because it's easy to love kittens and puppies and babies when they're not crying and um, pleasant experiences. That actually doesn't have much to do with love. That's kind of uh, ease of mind or sentimentality or something. I think love really manifests when things get difficult. That's when you really know it. That's the, the fire that melts this, the whatever barriers we have in our heart. And our hearts want to be melted. The pain isn't so bad. It's much better to have that happen than have it all still solid and barricaded. What love requires in practice, this quality, is constancy, Suzuki Roshi's word. A cup of knowledge, said St. Francis de Sales, a barrel of love and an ocean of patience. And in a way, this quality of love and patience are, are so related. Our, our practice will go through cycles. Sometimes you sit at home and it will really nourish you and you feel rested afterward. 
Other times you'll sit down after a busy day and the body will be tight and the mind will be spinning and you'll be hating this person and worried about that. And you don't want to feel it. And you don't want to look at it. Feel it. Look at it. Work to nourish that quality of constancy of what's called a long-enduring mind. It's not a short game. You know, we're used to instant food, drive through, tell the lady through the speaker, yes, I'd like a hamburger, a Coke, fries, and um, a Big Mac, or whatever it is. And then you drive around and you get it. You can eat it while you're driving. You don't even have to stop. Instant gratification. This is not an instant gratification thing. It is the longest thing you'll ever do. Because it's your whole life. It's really learning to discover how to transform our life from being automatic pilot to being conscious, to discovery, to play. And it's wonderful. So it means that you don't complete it, you actually learn how to play the game and make your life into that. It has many cycles. There'll be as many times when it's hard to sit, maybe more than when it's easy. And even in the good moments, they'll come and... You know what happens when something's really sweet and good? A wonderful taste or a great sexual experience or a good concert or piece of music or some wonderful sitting? What happens? There's this little voice that comes in the middle. What does it say? It won't last. How, how, can I get it to stay? How much longer? And there's that worry. Even in the middle, we can't kind of enjoy it because there's that, that thing inside that tries to grasp it. Wisdom is, is also this development of patience or love or constancy that you'll go through so many cycles. I read you a poem from Gary Snyder called The Avocado. The Dharma is like an avocado. Some parts of it so ripe you can't believe it, it's so good. And other parts hard and green without much flavor, pleasing those who like their eggs well cooked. And the skin is thin, the great big round seed in the middle is your own original true nature, pure and smooth. Almost nobody ever splits it open or ever tries to see if it will grow. Hard and slippery, it looks like you should plant it, but then it shoots through the fingers and gets away. And we grasp it sometimes, or we touch it. We touch something really deep, and it's beautiful and tremendously important. And then what happens? Boop! Slippery seed. That's fine. So you pick up the avocado seed again, or you plant it, or maybe you make a garden of avocado seeds, avocado trees. Inner quality of patience. So I'll give you another assignment. I'm trying as I speak. And I think over these next months with this sitting, it'll get easier for me to translate the talks and concepts that I've used so often in intensive retreats to try and find ways to make them really applicable in our situation of jobs and families and driving and all the rest of it. I did a radio show today on uh, KCBS, um, which will be on in a couple of weeks. And at the end of it, I taught a driving meditation, knowing that people listen to the radio driving. Don't close your eyes. <laughs> Hold the steering wheel. Now relax. That's right. Breathe a little. And it was great fun. 
But that's the quality of beginning to make what we do into our practice through this openness or discovery rather than some ideal that's spiritual and that all it does is discourage us. Through some willingness to renounce or, or, or a little fire. And finally through a tremendous amount of patience or constancy. And so here's another exercise I want to give you. Pick one day next week and maybe next time we'll have a little pairing at the end and see who did it and just share with one another in a pair what you discovered. So you better do it. Except, of course, if you're the kind that doesn't like to, don't do this exercise thing. All right. The exercise is pick one day next week and see how many moments of impatience you can count. Even if you get to 500, don't judge them, don't try and make them go away, but in one day of your life, see how many impatience you can count. Okay? 50, 200, 500. We'll have a contest. The person who comes with the most moments of impatience they saw in a day will get a prize. I won't tell you what the prize is. All right? I'm serious. All right? So this is that quality. Patience can even be used to understand impatience. Because if you look at it, you start to see what's there when you feel impatient. You know? And this is, we discover love by looking in the places where it's not, actually. We discover deeper or truer love. Don't look at what's romantic. Forget that part. Look at where it's hard, and you can really learn about love. So do the exercise, and what you start to see, I'll give you a little bit of a hint, is that you get impatient when, when what kind of experience is happening? Hmm? Unpleasant. When it's painful. When it's unpleasant. When there's some experience of body or mind that hurts a little bit. For the heart to open, if you want your heart open, it's up to you. You can take your choice. But if you'd like that, if that interests you, for the heart to open, it means that it has to be willing to feel what? Pain. What else? Joy. Joy. Pleasure, hot, cold, the whole thing. When you open the door, what do you get coming in? You get what's there. And if you open the heart, you get the experience of what our humanity is, what's rich. You can't open the heart for pleasure and not feel the pain. It's, the world is dual. It's up, down, light, dark, hot, cold. And when we open, we discover a kind, a capacity for joy and for understanding, which allows for the fact that life has pleasure and pain. It's got them both. If you don't want pain, go to another planet. Because this one has light and dark and sweet and sour and hot and cold and pleasure and pain. That's the game. If you want your heart to open, Study your impatience. It's a fantastic place to look. Count it through a day and just see what the things are that evoke it as you, as you look. Don't try and change it. And see, there's wonderful things you can learn from it. So I read you one more thing and then we'll close in a second and have some questions. This is from the Sufis again. Overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is part of her heart, and therefore each is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. 
you are sharing in the totality of that pain and are called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. And it's really, it's not a judgment, but it's, it's rather realizing we have this capacity. We have a beautiful capacity to suffer. And we have a beautiful capacity to love. And we have a beautiful capacity to open to the richness of our experience, which has all that in it, what's joyful and what's, what's unpleasant. So that the attitude of practice is really, it's like a flower blossoming. And you've started, so it's happening anyway. But you can help it. You can give a little plant food to it, or you can water it. By sitting every day, you water it. And the plant food and the nourishment comes from the sangha, from coming together and listening to the Dharma and discussing it and getting those extra kind of nutriments that help you when you work in your daily life. If we do that, then we can find the Dharma that's true. We can work with it in traffic on 101, you know, in our kitchen with our children, in our office, and in the times of our inner solitude. And, and then things really do become rich and wonderful. So I hope it wasn't too preachy tonight. I speak in a way to remind myself of these things that they just make it a lot better to live. It's not that you should do it, but these are just laws of, of what makes life richer or happier in some way. And so I want to close by telling one more story, and then we'll have some questions and a little discussion and some announcements. The story, which to me is a wonderful illustration of openness, is of a man, a physician, Larry Brilliant, who was involved in the smallpox uh, campaign to put an end, which was successful, to smallpox in the world. And he was working in India, in the last areas where there was still smallpox, in Nepal and India, in the villages. And it, almost everyone had been inoculated, and there were some few small areas where it still existed. And they had to go in, because if they didn't, then it would spread, and the whole thing would start all over again around the world. And the, there's blindness that comes from smallpox, and terrible disfiguration, and brain damage in certain cases. And so it was really a very important thing. Well, they went to this village, and the village refused to be inoculated. They said that smallpox came from God, and God brought both disease and life, and that that had to be honored as it came. And here's this guy, Larry Brilliant, who's a very devoted spiritual person. And these people are saying it's from God. And, he's, and he has to make some choice. Well, he and the people with him, they say, God or not, we don't want another 100,000 children next year to be blinded in the world by smallpox. And so they went into the village at night with their jeeps, and they went first to the house of the chief. And the doors were barricaded, and they broke the doors down, and they went in with nurses and doctors, and they wrestled the chief and his wife, who was actually tougher than the chief, apparently, to the floor, these health workers, and they gave them their shots. And they were screaming, saying, no, no, and whatever. And for him, it was terribly traumatic, because his values had been that you respect the religion of all people and so forth. It's not, a, you know, working in spiritual practice, it's not so black and white. It's not so easy. I'm sure you've seen that, haven't you? Making choices. So then what happened after that? Already that was difficult. So they're sitting there, and after inoculating the chief and his wife and the family, then following that the village was easy to inoculate. 
the chief goes out to his garden, a very small garden, it's a really poor village, and picks a couple of squash, some of the few vegetables that are in the garden, and brings them in and hands them to the doctors and says, uh, I'd like to give those as a gift, and starts to prepare a meal with the very little they have. And they're astonished. And they say, why, why, through the translator, why is he doing this? And the chief explains. He said, you came to my house. It is my religious belief that smallpox is a gift from God among the many things in this world. And following my religious belief in my heart, I had to resist you. It is your belief that it's the best thing in the world that everyone be inoculated. Following your belief, and given the fact that there were more of you than there were of us, you, inocula- you inoculated us. Defeat is no shame. Now you are a guest in my house, and I would like to treat you as such. And as he tells the story, it was one of the most wonderful awakenings in his life. It was the kind of awakening both to see that you are in a difficult situation. To live is difficult. And we're always in these binds of things. Can you stay open? Can you discover what's new? Can you allow the people around you to do surprising things? And can you yourself do surprising things? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.